So a man by the name of Robbie Robbins flew fighter jets in the first Iraq war, flew 300 missions, and one day got a surprise announcement that he and his crew could go home. The war was over. Uh, he, they jumped on a plane, flew into Massachusetts. Different people went in different directions. He hopped in a car <clears throat> that was heading to Pennsylvania where he lived, and he drove, they drove all night. And he got there in the morning, and it was going to be a surprise. Hadn't told his family he was coming. It was all like within a day. You know, fly the jet, land, get in a car, and go. But when he got there, it was he who was surprised because he saw over the garage, welcome home, Dad. And so he came into the house, and he said, uh, he, he, it's, it, was, it, was, it was weird because it was like they were ready, but they were running around getting dressed, and his wife comes, and she comes and gives a big hug and a kiss, welcome home, and, and he goes, well, how did you know I was coming? I, this was a total surprise. She goes, well, we didn't know you were coming today. We just knew when the war was over that someday soon you would be coming home, and we wanted to be, we wanted to be ready. So when Jesus talked about the second coming, one of the things that he talked about a lot was the importance of being ready for him and, and really the joy. And, and the New Testament Christians, there was a joy uh, that they were anticipating in Christ coming back. Now Jesus often talked about coming back and he referred to this time when he came back where his kingdom would be established fully on earth, um, but... It was also a time of judgment and a time of feasting. He talked about this a lot in his, in his parables. He spoke of the judgment aspect, but he also often talked about feasts and banquets and wedding banquets, and he described it as a joyous time when he would, uh, when, when he would be back. And he would tell his disciples, be ready for it and live in, in anticipation of it. So after his resurrection, his disciples took that to heart, and they asked him, is this the time? Are you going to bring your kingdom in fullness? So they have this conversation that's recorded in Acts. This is after the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, and they gathered around them, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, it's ever expanding, and to the ends of the earth. So he said, you, you will not know, it's not for you to know when I'm going to return, but in the meantime, be about my mission. Be my witnesses. Go and tell people about me. You have a testimony to tell. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. <clears throat> they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood Beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So the disciples took up this theme and they lived out the kingdom and they preached the kingdom and you find throughout the whole New Testament this pervasive theme of the return of Christ. There's not a page in scripture that doesn't, in the New Testament, that doesn't either explicitly speak of the return of Christ or doesn't have in the background implicitly how our lives should be shaped by the coming return of Christ. 
Now, when I was growing up in elementary school and through, college, uh, through high school and then through um, my college years, which would have been the very late 60s and all through the 70s, um, it was a huge theme. The second coming of Christ was a huge theme. So people uh, that are like my age, you, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it's not just my, it, it had its own feel, kind of had a revival through all the other, uh, you know, books like Left Behind and all that sort of thing. But it was really big back then, and it really wasn't so much talking about the Christ, Christ's return. It talked about Christ's return a lot, but kind of the theme that ran through that time was this theory that, that not all Christians hold to, but this, this theory based on a certain interpretation of certain passages that Christ would come, not all the way, but part way, and that his people would be raptured uh, into to, to Christ, and then he would go away for seven years, and there would be this terrible tribulation, and then he would... He would return. And so the focus was really on that. And so you had songs uh, that were written, one of them uh, just a classic song that uh, DC Talk uh, covered years later, uh, but it was by the so-called first Christian rocker, Larry Norman, and some of you may remember of him or read about him. And it's dark. <laughs> it's, it's called, uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And I could sing it for you. <laughs> if you remember his version of it, and he'd sing it in like a high falsetto. It was creepy. Um, but, uh, but listen to how dark this is. And this is how I remember, maybe because of this song, but this is how I remember that era of my life when people would talk about Christ. Life was filled. And this is talking about the rapture, okay? So it's not, it's not focused on the coming of Christ and the joy that that brings as well as the judgment. It's talking about the rapture. Life was filled with guns and wars and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Uh, the children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come. You've been left behind. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. The father spoke. The demons dined. How could you have been so blind? There is no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left in, behind. And then he kind of inserts this, I, I, I hope we'll all be ready. And then he finishes with several repetitions of, you've been left behind. So I have a, a lot of problems with that, that whole um, feel of that era. And... Uh, um, but I'll share a couple with you today, and then I'm going to give you a counter that I came to, to my mind this morning. Uh, so one of the problems that I had uh, with, with that is while the whole era got the memo that a judgment is coming, uh, very clearly got the memo, I can't remember anyone helping us get our head around reconciling this whole idea of God's judgment that's coming and God's absolute perfect love. And so um, I'm pretty sure there are people that were addressing that issue, but it doesn't seem to have worked its way down to where I was uh, or to where the popular books, popular preachers were in that day. Uh, secondly, in my circles, no one was talking about the kingdom Jesus was going to establish in the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. And that I stand by. There was just, uh, there's, there was very little. It's kind of like the 
the kind of Christianity that I grew up in and that many of you grew up in, it's kind of what we're still in, but has changed, is kind of the Bible began with Genesis 3, with sin. And it kind of came to fruition in the cross and then skipped to now be a good person. It was oftentimes that way. And that was evangelical Christianity of that day. And the gospel was focused, Jesus died. That's, that's about it instead of the gospel informing all of life. So the focus seemed to be on avoiding hell and going to heaven. Hardly anybody was talking about systemic injustice, not in the 70s at least, maybe, maybe in the early 80s, systemic injustice throughout our world, the new creation and God coming and really making things right that have been wrong and broken about our world. Now that places me in a certain kind of evangelical Christianity, evangelical little e, um, a white middle class, and I, I think my mom and I were the only Hispanic people in a church of about 500 people. And um, so that place might have been different in the Hispanic church or the black church, um, I don't know. But I bring this up, uh, but, but there, is a, there is a counter, especially to my first point. So this morning I was reading an article on something completely different, but it occurred to me that, that maybe I was being a little bit unfair with that first point. <laughs> and it occurred to me that, um, that if I think back and my struggles with this whole idea of God's judgment, which was a big struggle for me, and God's love, I don't know that I ever brought that up with my youth leaders or with anybody else. And I really have to look back and go, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe if I had, they would have spoken to it. But I didn't feel like I had permission to bring up that kind of thing. And I don't think it was their fault. I think it was, I think, I think it was probably my own. I don't know what they would have said, but maybe they would have come up with what I'm going to share in a, in a few moments. So I want to be a little bit more fair um, about that. Uh, I would have just dropped this whole point, but it's in your outline, so I had to keep it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I bring this up because many of you live through that same period of time, and it impacts how we hear the passage that we're going to look at today. And I don't think sometimes that it, it, it impacts it all that well. So my hope is that you're going to leave here today with the kind of hope and aspiration and joy that you heard in that first story I told about the the man returning from the war and people being ready and the joy for that. I hope you'll leave with a greater sense of joy over the return of Christ and the thought of the return of Christ and anticipation without at the same time losing any sense of the seriousness of God's judgment that is coming at that same time. And that um, living with that joy and with that understanding of judgment that it will impact uh, your life on a daily basis because that's what this scripture is about. It's about impacting our life on a daily basis. So we're going to pick up in verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And we won't look at all the details, but I'm going to point out a few things as we go along. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, and following their own evil desires. And I want to stop a moment there. It's something that a lot of people miss, and certainly, uh, yeah, a lot of people miss. And that is the last days. If you read the New Testament, they believed and they taught they were in the last days. And they weren't wrong. The last days are what we're living in and what we've been living in since the ascension of Christ. We're living in the last days. 
So always when you, when you hear people talking about, well, we're living in the last days, yep. Been going like that for about 2,000 years. <laughs> All right, so just keep that, keep that in mind. That's how the scripture speaks about it. So in the last days, what's going to happen? They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All right, so we're going to look at three reasons why we can look forward to this time with great anticipation. There are more, but there's three that we're going to look at in this passage. And the first one is this. At the second coming, everything that is wrong will be made right. Everything that is wrong will be made right. We're, we're going to spend most of our time on this point. We'll spend a little bit time in the second and, and really quickly through the third. Uh, there's a lot of fire and destruction in this passage. It sounds like the I wish we'd all been ready in, in many ways. But I want you to see the goal of the judgment, and it's in verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We live in a world um, where righteousness, we, we now do not live in a world where righteousness dwells. Righteousness does not dwell in our time. A, a world where righteousness dwells is, um, is a world that you read about in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the world that God created. It's the world the way that it's supposed to be. It's God and humanity in perfect harmony, relational harmony, even relational harmony between them and even the earth and everything on the earth. Uh, it's, it's a partnership. God creates human beings in his image to partner with him in ruling the earth. It's God is the king and we are the vice regents. We are, we are ruling on the earth uh, as his stewards. Everything is totally in alignment. We are in alignment with God and with his purposes. The earth is in alignment with God and his purposes. And the people on the earth are managing his world in his way. Now, we don't live in that world, and Genesis 3 tells us why we don't live in that world anymore. Uh, we don't live in that world because we decided God 
We don't want God as king. We want to be kings up there with God. We want to be our own gods. And then sometimes we don't even want to be our own gods. We want to, we want to take uh, the glory that God is, the scripture tells us. We want to take his glory, which means uh, his rule and his power and his greatness. We want to take it and we, we exchange God's glory and we put it in the things that he created. And we let those things rule over us. So when we're driven by certain desires, when we're driven by things that we want, when we're driven by money, sex, power, whatever it is, when that's driving our lives, what we have done, the scripture says, is we have exchanged glory, honor, power, reign. We've taken it from the good God who reigns in perfection, and we've placed it in something that has no power to help us, is going to let us down, um, and will destroy us because it can't serve as a God. That's, that's, that's what we do in Genesis 3. We trust in ourselves and our own logic more than we trust in God and what he says and his logic. We believe lies about God. Uh, we disobey God. In, in the garden, there was just one rule. One rule. Don't eat from this one tree. You got all the other trees. Eat from them. Just don't eat from this one tree. We disobey um, from the one, this one rule. And these are, these are just what I've just described are just some of the ways of describing what happened in Genesis 3 and what sin is. You've heard me say this a million times. Sin is not simply breaking God's commands. The commands don't even show up for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Right? It's this, it's this rebellion, it's this lack of trust, it's this questioning, it's this trying to raise ourselves up into a place where we can't function well, we don't belong. So we introduce hell uh, into the good world that God created. God creates the heavens and the earth, we create hell. And the Bible explains that for righteousness to dwell again on the earth, a judgment needs to happen. And the reason a judgment needs to happen is because God has to ha- get the hell that we created out of the earth. We don't want to live in eternity. We don't want to live in a new heaven and a new earth that still has hell <laughs> on the earth that we've created. And that's why a judgment has to happen. That's, that's, that's the lens to look at judgment in the scripture. That's what judgment is about. Judgment is necessary because, well, it's necessary because God cares about us, about our pain, and about our, the injustice that we've unleashed on ourselves and on our world. He cares about those things. He's perfectly just. He is filled with justice. And we get justice. We don't, we don't get it when it comes to God. We always think, you know, God's, not always. We oftentimes think God just seems to be such a judgmental, hard-hitting God. Um, but when we get hurt and somebody does something horrible and evil towards us, we get it. And it doesn't even happen to us. I mean, if you've been following the news the last couple of weeks or maybe even more with Jeffrey Epstein and, uh, and all of that, what, what was everybody kind of really upset about when he took his own life in prison and where, you know, through the failure of the, the people who were, who were overseeing him? I mean, they had, in, in the American system of law, there was a huge, this is why it's such a big deal, there's a, there's a huge need to, 
to get that person to court and for justice to be done. And we all feel it. We all feel it. And, we all, and there's this concern, not only that he escaped that, even by taking his own life, we're angry. That's, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. We expect justice to be done and the truth to come out and all the other implications of it and people and everything. And so there are people that feel like they're not going to have their day in court in the way that it should have been and all that. We get justice. We cry for it when it impacts us or we, when we see how it impacts other people. But we still have problems with God's justice. We still do. I know I've had problems with God's judgment and justice since, since I was in high school. I mean, if there was anything that would have derailed me in my faith and my walk with God and my love for God, it would have been this issue. And I think it boils down to this, and some of you might, might feel the same way. I want God's judgment to be appropriate and fair. That's what I yearn for. And when I think of fire and hell and destruction, it doesn't feel appropriate and fair, appropriate and fair for the majority of people living in the world. That's been my problem. And so I wrestle with it all my life, seeking to come to terms with that um, in my own heart, in my own mind, and from a biblical worldview, not making it up myself, not trying to create my own little portion of, let's say, I don't like this part about Christianity, so I'm going to change it so that it feels better for me. And, um, and, and you just can't get away from the fact that if you, if you believe in Jesus and follow him and love Jesus, and, and even people who don't follow Jesus you oftentimes say, oh yeah, I, I love Jesus. I don't like the rest of it. I don't like that Old Testament God, but I love Jesus. Jesus spoke of judgment and hell more than anybody else. Literally, more than anybody else in the entire New Testament. So you have to you have to deal with that if you're going to hold on to Jesus. So here's how I live with the tension, and hopefully this will be helpful for some of you. This is maybe what somebody would have told me if I had shared it with them back, back in the day. So the number one is I trust God. That's my bottom line. He's a good God. He's a God who does what's right. Uh, that's his own testimony about himself. That's the testimony of his people for thousands of years. And... He's proven himself trustworthy. If you look at the story of God, how can you not trust the goodness of a God whose redemption plan for people who have ruined his earth is that he would be torn to pieces himself for our sakes? How can you, tr how can you not trust that God? So that's where it's, it starts. Frederick Buechner puts it well. He says, the New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history, and there will be a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. I hold on to that. And that's the bottom line, and everything else I'm going to say now, the next four points really just constantly go back to that. So the next one is I've learned to do, I, I'm learning, and I have learned, and I'm continually learning, to doubt my doubts more than I doubt God. Um, I've learned, and I'm still learning, to distrust myself. God, as he revealed himself in the Bible, is infinitely 
more loving than me. I mean, just from the, reading the scripture, when I see the love of God in scripture as it is told in there, I go, I would not love like that. <laughs> I don't love like that. So I, I doubt my own, when I have doubts about God's love and, you know, because of his justice and because of his judgment, I, I have to remember, I, he loves more than I do. He loves people more than I do. He loves my kids more than I do. He loves my friends more than I do. He loves this world more than I do. So I have to doubt my own doubts when I have doubts. <clears throat> he has the whole picture. I don't have the whole picture. Third thing I, I do is I try to comprehend the magnitude of sin because the scripture makes a lot of sin. What I described to you in Genesis 3 has created hell on earth and has created all the problems that we have and all around the world and the shootings and the abuse and all the Jeffrey Epstein's. All of that's created by us. That's created by us. And so I try to grab the magnitude, grasp the magnitude of sin, but I'm not God, and I have, to re, I have to respect his response to sin because he sees it in a way that I can't even see it. Fourthly, I try to stay in my lane and within the confines of my pay grade. <laughs> because I think, I think one, of the, one of the dangers that I see, and it's been done through all history, and there's a bunch of people doing it today, that are becoming, through social media and stuff like that, very popular in doing this, is they have a problem with this as well, and so they just, they just start, um, they just kind of take all of that out of the Bible, but still want to hold on to the rest of the message. And I'm like, hey, that, yeah, the, that doesn't end well. It never in history has ended well. It usually ends in, a derailment. Your, your faith will derail. Certainly the next generation will derail. You can't pick and choose what you want when God speaks. We've talked about before the, that idea of a step for God where you just kind of build a God that fits exactly who you want him to be, but it's not who he is. And how, you know, that's not really... Um, the God that you want to follow, and it's not the real God. So I don't try to explain why. I want his judgment to stand because he doesn't hold back from talking about judgment. He doesn't hold back from talking about fire and brimstone in the end. You know, it's all images. I understand that. Those are images, but he doesn't, he doesn't want me to come away from those passages going, I feel okay now because now I see that this isn't really what God is saying when he so clearly is saying it. And then finally, I focus my attention on the new creation. Now this was com almost completely lacking in the Christianity of my youth, for sure. Um, but one of the things that, that I think has been renewed in recent years, for, for a while now, is a reminder that the day of judgment is also the day of the Lord. Day of judgment is also the day of the Lord. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's the day of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. It's significant because when you say it's the day of the Lord, what well, you're saying it's his day. See, the spotlight is going to be on him. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see him for all of his glory and all of his greatness. We're going to see him at the center of everything the way that it's supposed to be. It's his day. It's kind of like uh, uh, if you're married, your wedding day. It's your day. And people kind of revolve around you for your day. Uh, 
at my mom's memorial service on Friday, you know, we had people coming up and saying, you know, I'm so sorry, and, and all those kind of statements, and I'm looking at them oftentimes, and I've, you know, I did your parents' funeral. You've been there too. I'm like, don't, don't focus on me. You know, we're all in on this together. But really, it was in many ways, because I was our only son, it was, in a sense, it was her day, my day to grieve, and, and going, no, 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 no. Don't, don't talk to me about my grief, you know, because it was a day. It's going to be Christ's day. It's going to be the Lord's day. Now, to help us understand this, Tim Keller has an excellent illustration of this. He um, tells a story about uh, reading about a Broadway play. He's a pastor in Manhattan. Um, reading about a, a Broadway play that, that was not, the rehearsals were not going well. And it was like, it was, it was a disaster in the making. And everybody knew it. The director knew it. They knew opening night, this was going to be one of those things that was going to be panned and, you know, you know a one-night stand for a play. And that's, that's not good on everybody's record. And, uh, and so um, everybody knew it wasn't working, so the director made a decision. Um, he realized, and probably everybody realized, why it wasn't working. It wasn't working because the lead actress wasn't up to the role. She wasn't a good enough actor. And so um, he made a decision, and he decided to take one of the supporting actresses and put her in the lead role and switched so that the lead actress became a supporting, took a supporting role. And he said as he was reading the story, he said that almost everything clicked, almost immediately. And things started working, and it was obvious to everybody that the change had been the fix, including the leading lady, the old leading lady. She's like, you know, you know it, was, it was clear what that was. And the play was, went on to be a success, the new late leading lady's ability shown, and she went on to become a famous star. So Keller says this. He says, your main problem is you look at life and everything about life as a play written with you in the lead. And we talk a lot here about the story of God. We live in stories. We have a narrative of what life is about. And what we have to recognize is that we are living, this is what sin does and what it is, is that every single one of us here are prone to live as if this, everybody here, is the supporting role and I am in the primary role. I want my family, I want my spouse, I want my kids, I want my parents to, to live in such a way that things turn out well for me. Every mute human being sees themselves in this way, but we can't carry it off. We are not, we're not up to the role of being the leading role. It's a disaster. We know it, and everybody knows it. But on the day of the Lord, on his day, the day when the spotlight is on him, it's going to become obvious what was wrong it's going to be like the role will be switched, Jesus is going to be at the center, and we're going to go, and things are going to work, and we're going to see what it's supposed to be, and then we're going to go, oh, obviously, obviously. And that's something to look forward to. That is something to look forward to. You can bet in that Broadway play, everybody was like, yes. 
And that's what we're going to be. It's going to be like, yes. That's going to be a dangerous day. The scripture, that's what you don't, it's going to be a dangerous day, not a good day for people who will not put Christ in the leading role, who are not willing, who are not depending on God's grace to do that because we're not able to do that on our own. We need to just admit it. We're not. We need, we need you in the leading role. And so when the new heavens and new comes, righteousness will dwell. And that's part of what righteousness means. Things will be right. What was wrong will be made right. Second reason. Looking forward to the second coming will lead to a better life now. We can look with eager anticipation because it will lead to a better life now. Now, I want to say this right up front. A better life now doesn't mean things will go well. It means that in spite of whatever circumstances, the worst circumstances, it will be better than otherwise. So look at verse uh, 11 and 12 in chapter 3, where it says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed his, its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by the fire and elements will melt in the heat. All right, so it's saying that on that day, God will be in the right place. And if we know that, let's do it now. Let's live that way now. That's what it means to live a holy and godly life. Now, we don't need God in a supporting role. That's a recipe to, for disaster. That's not the good life that we were created for. You don't, need, you don't even need a God who is um, a director, okay? So this is what we oftentimes do. We, we trade being in, we, we think we trade. We say, okay, I don't want to be in the lead role. I want God to be in the lead role. But instead what we do is we say, okay, I'm going to follow God. God, you are now the director of my life. But I'm still going to be in the leading role. Direct me well <laughs> with me in the leading role. We don't need that either. We need, we need God to be the star, not us be the stars. So what you and I need is the day of the Lord when Christ is going to be in his rightful place where things will fall together, where we get that. And when we live in light of that day, in that reality, in that story, it's a better life now because we're in that supporting role where we're supposed to be. And that's what a holy life is about. It's living with, in mind that God is in charge. He is he is in charge of our lives. His way is the best way. We can trust him, his goodness. We can live that life of goodness. We can live that Godward life, a godly life, a Godward life. Knowing it's going to be fixed out there, but we can right now begin to live that more and more as we grow in him. We can serve his dream. We can serve his agenda. We can do things in his way. We can relate to people in his way. And we can stop seeking glory for ourselves, putting ourselves at the center, because Part of the beauty of the whole thing is that the scripture says all of his glory, his power, his reign, his majesty, he is going to share fully with us. He's already sharing it with us as his people created in his image, but he's going to share it fully with us. We don't need to seek glory for ourselves. We don't need to be a celebrity. We don't need to be famous. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to be like admired by everybody. We can live for that audience of one. We can live for God because he's going to share his glory with us and is sharing his glory with us. So John Newton wrote the, uh, the song Amazing Grace uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago or so, maybe even more. Um, he, he wrote a meditation about the Hallelujah Chorus, which had gotten a revival in his day. It was about, a, I think, 100 years old. So this is 
early 1800s, and he wrote a, a whole sermon series on this. He used to be a slave trader himself, and, and then um, came to know Christ, continued in slave trade for a long time, and then got out of it, and then repented of, of that life. But, um, <clears throat> and this is from Keller again, um, he had a meditation on, on this hallelujah course, and, uh, and specifically all the scripture that is behind it, and one of them had to do with the great words, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So omnipotent meaning all-powerful, the Lord God all-powerful reigns. But he said the music is so beautiful, a lot of times people enjoy the music, but the message kind of passes, just kind of washes over them, and they leave inspired by the song, even some of the words, but they don't really, haven't thought about everything that is saying and applying it to their daily lives. What does it mean? The Lord, our God, omnipotent, reigneth. What does that mean for our daily lives? If we really take that in and get the awe of that, it's going to change how we see life and how we live our lives. He says it's a little bit like buying a telescope and inviting people over to look at the telescope. Isn't it beautiful? Look how shiny it is. <laughs> Wonderful technology. Look at it. But nobody looks through it at the heavens. And um, uh, so Peter is calling us to look through the telescope and to look at the day of God's coming, the new creation that's coming, to look at it and let us change our life now, to live life the way we're supposed to live, to reflect Christ, to reflect Jesus in our lives, and to show the marks of being a follower of Jesus, the marks of Christ in our life, in the way that we live, to live that Godward life. The third reason we need to be, um, I need to go through really quickly, so I've gone longer than last night. <laughs> Third reason is at the second coming, we will experience the fullness of his grace. We're not going to experience the fullness of his grace until that point. We, we, we experience it, but in, experientially, to really get what grace is, it'll be when we see him in all of his glory. And we see our life laid bare, with this, which was part of what this passage is talking about. We're going to see everything is going to be laid bare. So Matt Woodley, I've, I've shared this story before. Uh, I want to share it again. Uh, it's a powerful story. Uh, he's a pastor and author, and he talks about grace, and he says this, grace stuns and silences us, and we are going to be stunned and silenced by God's grace on that day. He says, this thought hit me as my friend George shared his journey to Christ. He was sitting in a, we were sitting in a dingy church basement confessing a sordid, he was confessing a sordid tale of sexual sin. After starting with pornography, he moved on to high-priced escort services. But then he hit bottom, his life un unraveled. He lost his job, his family disowned him, and his wife was leaving him. By now, like the prodigal son, George had finally come to his senses. When he finished his tale of filth and mercy, George asked to share a poem he had just discovered. With hands shaking, he unraveled a scrap of paper and told us, I've been carrying this all week, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And it goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. As tears of joy and relief streamed down his face, I realized that I didn't understand God's grace. I'd heard that old hymn a thousand times, and it usually bored me. 
Grace can leave us angry, stunned, bewildered, delighted, or grateful, but it can never make us bored. George, a desperately lost and hungry sinner, discovered God's grace, and he wept for joy. On that day, George became my mentor in the ways of grace. Let's pray.